Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Drum Tower. I'm David Rennie. I'm the Beijing Bureau Chief and I'm here with my co-host Alice Su our senior China correspondent based in Taipei. Today, we start with the protests that have been taking place all over China. Many of them are focused on COVID controls, but we've also heard shocking calls from some protesters, including demands for Xi Jinping to step down and for no return to the Cultural Revolution. What we're hearing is real anger over the party's intrusion into every corner of people's lives, taking us back to a China where a party worker with a red armband can lock you in your home in the name of zero COVID, though no law lets them do that. We've all heard about China's high-tech surveillance system, but I've been looking into another kind of low-tech surveillance that mobilizes people to police one another. Imagine living in a society where it's not just police and cameras watching you, but also your neighbors. That's what Xi Jinping wants. We'll hear from somebody who's lived through that in China's most tightly policed region, Xinjiang. We'll end by asking whether public anger and protests might threaten Xi Jinping's plans for total control over China. This is Drumtar. From The Economist. David, how are you? It has been a crazy weekend. There are protests all over China, and you had the incredible privilege last night of actually being in the middle of one in Beijing. Can you tell me you know, what you saw? It was really remarkable. For five hours in the absolute center of Beijing, first on a riverbank, then on a big ring road, uh, we saw hundreds of people, most of them young, uh, students and sort of 20-somethings, but joined by older Beijingers, protesting and expressing their kind of frustration with the zero COVID policies. So we had kind of big picture stuff about too many COVID tests, the economic costs, but also about who had died. So something the party will hate is you had people in Beijing expressing solidarity, lighting candles, laying flowers for people who died in an apartment building that caught fire in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, but also people who had then been arrested the day before in Shanghai and then some extremely explicit political slogans about freedom of speech, human rights. And so really the party's worst nightmare, although the police in massive force deliberately didn't sort of drive mass arrest. They, they let it go until two o'clock and then sent everyone home. I mean, you mentioned these political slogans, and I think that is what has really drawn global attention to China over the weekend. I'm over here in Taiwan, and I was just completely riveted by the, the videos that were coming out from Sichuan, from Shanghai, from Wuhan, from Urumqi. And people are seeing this kind of unprecedented release of anger in China and daring to say things that you, you never think you would hear from Chinese people out on the streets, you know, things like 
down with Xi Jinping, down with the Communist Party. Now, I, I think our listeners need to understand that this isn't coming out of nowhere, right? There was a clear buildup to this moment in the last few days. So the clear trigger point for the protest was a fire that happened in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, on Thursday night. The thing that made everyone so angry about the Urumqi fire is that this building where 10 people died had been under lockdown already for more than 100 days. And there were videos coming out all over social media of people screaming, children crying as a fire you know, consumed several floors of that building. And then there were also videos filmed by neighbors of firefighters coming and fire trucks coming to the area, but seemingly failing to get close to the apartment. And, you know, we're not able to confirm this, but... What people in Urumqi are saying is that the firefighters couldn't reach the people in the building because of COVID controls and because, you know, the doors were locked or because there were cars blocking the way. And as a result, all these people died. And people were angry already about that. It's not the first time that there have been unnecessary deaths due to COVID controls. It seems like what really escalated the anger was that in part, it's because it's the worst nightmare for anybody who has lived in COVID zero China, right? You know that you could be trapped in your building at any time. And you imagine the scenario where a fire starts and you can't get out. So what was extraordinary was that the next night on Friday, we saw people in Urumqi protesting, taking to the streets, waving Chinese flags, singing the Chinese anthem, demanding that they wanted the lockdown lifted. And it seems like they put so much pressure on the government that the Urumqi city government held a press conference that same night at midnight where the city government addressed the fire. But they also made people even angrier with what they said because they suggested that the victims of the fire had a way out, but they were just too weak to save themselves. So watching from the outside, you know, I find myself in the same situation as many Chinese people abroad where you're just trying to get information. And my experience that night was also looking at WeChat, looking at Chinese social media. People are desperately trying to share news of this fire. People are desperately trying to share news of the protest, but everything keeps getting deleted. Everything you click, every link you click, it's like, it's not available, it's not available, it's not there. And so, so there's also just this anger that these COVID controls have caused unnecessary deaths. And when people try to talk about it, they can't speak. There was this really remarkable trend where they hold up a piece of blank white paper. And that is a protest against censorship. It's the idea that, you know, you're not even saying anything. The paper is blank and yet you're not allowed to speak. And that seemed to just really catch fire. And then we saw a gathering on Ulumuti Zhonglu in Shanghai, which is Urumqi Road. And I think what's tragic and striking about these protests is that they were sparked by these deaths and they're sparked by people just wanting to mourn for these unnecessary victims of the fire. So they start off as vigils, but then we see that they gain momentum and more people come. And then eventually we start to hear these slogans. And in some cases, they're repeating slogans that were pasted on banners on a bridge six weeks ago, right before the 20th Party Congress in Beijing. There was one lone protester who hung a banner and it had all these slogans like, you know, no to COVID tests, yes to food, you know, no to lockdown, yes to freedom, no to being a slave, yes to being a citizen. You're absolutely right to mention the link with those slogans that we saw on that bridge a few weeks ago and that have been on university campuses around the world. And, you know, 
after we saw that happen, even us at The Economist, we were discussing our China coverage and we were thinking, you know, it's not a big deal because it's just one person. We just barely mentioned it in our coverage, actually. It didn't seem to make an impact, right? We saw there were diaspora Chinese students who were echoing that protest. They were putting posters in their schools, but they were all abroad. They were not in China. So it really did seem like, okay, this is it's not really important or it's not making a big impact. But then I think just to suddenly see that, oh, this protest that was censored and just wiped out from the Chinese internet completely, it seems like people did know about it because they're shouting those same slogans on the streets. So, you know, there's a clear reference to these things that are happening and being erased. And yet you feel that the people who are out there know about it because they're holding vigils and they're chanting those slogans. So it is just this remarkable explosion of anger it's anger about how these policies have hurt people and then anger about how people are not allowed to speak about it. So, I mean, to me, it's incredibly moving to see this happening because I know how much courage it takes for any one individual in China to go on the street and take an action like that, let alone, you know, say these very political things. But David, I'm also highly aware that my view is limited because I'm not there on the ground. And I want to know, you know, on the ground, how much of this really is political in the sense of criticizing the system and demanding freedom of speech? And how much of it is just people fed up with lockdown? People just don't want to be in lockdown anymore. Tell me about that. What was really interesting, and I think revealing, and in some ways kind of sad, is that you're right. These young people were incredibly brave to go out. There were huge numbers of police watching them. But as a result, they were careful. They only used some of the slogans from the bridge. And so almost the most political one of those slogans they used was saying they didn't want to return to the Cultural Revolution, but that wasn't used much. And when one person went to the slogan that talked about wanting to vote in elections, then everyone got very panicked and started seeing the Chinese national anthem because they knew they were being filmed, they were being watched. And I think what's fascinating about this moment is that that dramatic protest, which we so rarely see, which only, to be honest, involved a few hundred people in central Beijing, is dwarfed by a much larger sense of deep frustration, which isn't explicitly political, which isn't even kind of against the party. It's about the way that the party is doing its business and is being increasingly intrusive as part of zero COVID. And what's amazing about this moment is that I think there's a much broader, larger group of people just fed up with the zero COVID policy and all of its costs. And some of their complaints aren't necessarily political at all. They're not saying down with Xi Jinping. But what they are often saying is that the way that zero COVID is enforced is giving amazing power to the lowest level of grassroots kind of neighborhood committees and community volunteers. And they don't have the legal right to say, shut down an entire apartment building with hundreds of people in it, but they've been doing that. You know, where I live in Beijing, we've had building after building, including my own uh, for 24 hours, shut down because of a suspect COVID test. Actually, no one had COVID. And I saw this extraordinary confrontation where the residents of this apartment building, they were threatened with a fresh lockdown, hundreds of people not able to leave their homes. And they said, where's, your, where's the legal right? And they got the party secretary of the lowest level of Chinese governance, the Zhu Weihui, the neighborhood committee. And they had him there surrounded by angry neighbors saying, where's, where's the law that lets you do this? Where's the law that lets you shut us down? And he didn't have a law. So they eventually had to admit he didn't have the power to shut them down. And this is about this vision of revitalizing all of these party structures. And you see how intrusive it's become because of COVID. I mean, I'm a foreigner living in Beijing. I never knew where my local neighborhood committee office was because I never needed to. But then I went on a reporting trip and I got the dreaded pop-up on my Beijing health kit. Now, what that means is 
To survive anywhere in Beijing at the moment, you have to have a green code on your smartphone to go anywhere. But if you travel somewhere that might have a case, you get this thing called a pop-up, a tangchuan. And then eventually, the only way to clear it was to get on my bike, go to the neighborhood committee and find some guy and explain and sign a piece of paper saying I'd never been to the place they thought I'd been to. And then eventually, someone made a phone call that cleared this thing. And so zero COVID from Xi Jinping's point of view, has been this gift because it allowed him to revive all of those grassroots structures. But there's no legal basis to a lot of this. People are having to kind of argue the toss with kind of these neighborhood officials. And as zero COVID gets exhausting, as the costs mount, people are getting sick of it. And in part, they're sick of this intrusion of the party into every corner of their life at a kind of granular level. That's why you're hearing people saying, we don't want to go back to the Cultural Revolution. They don't literally mean that there's kind of mobs on the streets. But what they're saying is that they are made very uneasy by this revival of the grassroots. And you've been writing amazing things recently, Alice, about a plan that specifically revives some Mao-era methods of social control. And that Xi Jinping loves this idea of bringing the party back into people's lives at the lowest level. That's a really helpful explanation, David, because it helps us to see how people are not only angry about zero COVID because they don't want to be locked down, but they're angry about losing control over their daily lives because of these arbitrary decisions that can be made by local officials or local grid workers, neighborhood committee workers who can make decisions for them. And recently, we have been looking at how that system of grid-level control is going even deeper into people's lives, right, from their neighborhoods to their compounds into their buildings. A few weeks ago, I saw on Chinese social media that people were complaining about an official notice that came out in Sichuan province. And it was an announcement that in some neighborhoods, households were going to be divided into groups of 10 with a kind of captain or leader in Chinese as shi hu zhang appointed to be in charge of every group. The idea here was that even beyond dividing Chinese neighborhoods into blocks and communities and buildings, within the buildings, people will be divided even further into groups of 10 households. And of course, you know, once you start talking about 10 households, that number is not an accident, right? Because if you go back to centuries and centuries ago, you had imperial dynasties ordering that the population should be divided into 10 households that would uh, watch each other and defend the community. Yeah. And I think when you look at these official documents, at first, it, it doesn't sound like, oh, this is a, a mutual surveillance system. It's, it's fairly innocuous. I looked at this cartoon that was published by an official account from part of Sichuan, and it was kind of explaining, okay, we're just putting people in groups of 10, and this is the most granular level of a system that already exists, right? So they had these diagrams that show show how a neighborhood is organized and you go from the neighborhood to the community, to the building, to within the building, you organize to the next level, which is the 10 households. And then the 10 household captain makes chat groups. And then the next picture shows how the head of the 10 households is a politically reliable person, say, you know, a retired soldier or, or someone with good party credentials. And they're at the center of this group of 10. They have these other nine households all around them. And then their job is to, you know, kind of go door to door to check on everyone else in the group. So the cartoon's explaining the kind of the appointment of this new figure of authority, who's not a paid official, the 10 household captain, and who's just your neighbor, right? Or they might even be your dad or your wife, presumably. And in the cartoon, it's like a smiley person with a red armband. And sometimes they offer services. Uh, for example, there's a picture of a 10 household leader delivering groceries to their neighbors in lockdown. But other times their job is to 
just monitor what's happening and to collect information on the rest of their group of 10. And you mentioned lockdown. So is this a COVID-specific thing or this is bigger than the current pandemic controls? So some of the reports and official notices we read were about COVID control and mostly about the leaders going door to door and making sure everyone's following COVID policy. But we also saw that in some parts of some provinces, people are being organized in these 10 household groups to do security drills together. This is part of a system that's called 十户联防, 10 Household Joint Defense. And I actually found a bunch of videos online, mostly posted by local police stations. Um, you can watch this one from a part of Anhui province. Oh, dramatic music. Yeah, <laughs> it is very dramatic. Um, we can see here some local policemen with a bunch of Anhui residents, and they're carrying out a counterterrorism drill. Yeah, I think listeners should know that there's a contrast between the drama of the music and what we're watching, which is a bunch of, frankly, schlubby guys uh, having a tummy fork pointed at them. Yeah. Um, David, you said tummy fork, but I'll have you know there's actually a, a technical name for that. It's called fangbao cha. So it is an, an anti-riot fork, and it's this long stick with a fork on the end, and its purpose is to, you know, trap a... To hold the bad guy down. By the tummy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You see them in metro stations, but I never knew the name before. Fang Bao Cha, anti-riot fork. So so here, you know, you can see that these kinds of security drills, they're really interesting. You see these local residents. They just look like your everyday, like friendly Anhui guy. And they're kind of wearing vests and they're working on these drills with the police. We can watch another video so you get a better idea. Okay, this one has a, a different soundtrack. Yeah, there's a big police crest, which is frankly the most dramatic thing about this. Oh, no, no, it's again, they're standing in a car park and watching someone. And I think, is that a tummy fork? Yeah, that's the fork. Tummy forks are <laughs> getting some action. They'd have to be quite cooperative. The kind of axe-wielding maniac has to stand quite still to have the tummy fork actually do any use. So it's basically police equipping civilians with, you know, big riot shields and forks and then doing these drills and getting them to practice, you know, if some kind of safety incident happens, you know, we all run out and we all fight the bad guy together. And, and this is how we do it. There's an element of security theater to these videos, it has to be said. And people do look a little bit baffled. Yeah. Uh, as they're being trained. Yeah, they do, especially when you think about actually how, how safe most of these areas are. But to me, when, when I watched these videos and when I read about this policy, it was alarming to me because it, it reminded me of something I had seen before in the northwestern region of Xinjiang, which we can come back to and talk about in a bit. But you get the idea. The, the point of these 10 household groups is that you get ordinary people involved. You go all the way down to the most granular part of the grassroots and you make these little groups of 10 and then you, you mobilize them. And of course, if you're Chinese and you know your history, that triggers memories of, for example, the Baojia system, because 10 households is that unit of grassroots control that's been used again and again by different imperial dynasties going way back. And those 10 families could be punished for any crime that the neighbors or relatives committed. In fact, in some versions, they could even be punished for failing to report their own relatives before they'd committed a crime. Yeah, that's right. And those historical references are exactly the kinds of fears that I saw online. Chinese commenters were saying, you know, are we going back to the Song Dynasty or the Qin Dynasty? But, but there is a key difference in that we don't yet see collective punishment as part of the current 10 household systems. And look, collective responsibility can already look a lot like punishment. And you see that with zero COVID. So even here in Beijing, you can see the way that getting COVID makes you a social outcast, that anyone who's a test positive, hundreds of their neighbors, of their colleagues, their kids' schoolmates will be locked up in quarantine clinics, potentially thousands 
of their neighbors and colleagues will go into quarantine in their own homes. And so a lot of people will hate you. I mean, it's very striking that I actually sought out someone who was the patient zero in a big outbreak in Beijing, who'd done nothing wrong at all. Uh, he got COVID buying food for his kid, reported himself. But even two months later, his child didn't dare play with any of his school friends, uh, stayed at home because he was worried about the ostracism. And so you can see that one of the things that's driven compliance with zero COVID is the kind of stigma of getting it. And Chinese people will say, this is why we're better than the West, because you're too selfish and individualistic to look after those around you by staying safe. Again, there's no formal collective punishment, but the effect is if one person gets COVID in a building, everyone will be punished. They will be locked down. And that can already motivate people to monitor their neighbors, make sure they're not secretly traveling, you know, secretly going to, you know, places where they could get infected. And so in, in some ways, the Shihuzhang system, the 10 household system is formalizing a mutual monitoring that's already happening. It's also clear that it's not only about COVID. For example, we read one notice from a Tibetan part of Qinghai province. And in this notice, it mentioned that Tibetan nomads were also being organized in groups of 10. And the Shihuzhang, the 10 household captains, were responsible for checking on them and their ideological status. Another reason why I found this system so interesting and alarming was because it reminded me of something I'd seen before in Xinjiang. That's really interesting, because once you start talking about Tibetan areas or you start talking about Xinjiang, then it's not at all kind of lighthearted to talk about people being politically reliable. And, you know, listeners will know that Xinjiang is the northwestern province of China, which is uh, home to about 10 million Uyghurs, most of them Muslims, uh, who have been put in re-education camps and really their entire province region turned into a high-tech police state, a kind of a, a giant open prison. Yeah, and you and I have both reported there, and we've seen the hardware of the surveillance, right? We've seen the facial recognition cameras, the security checks, and all of that. But the last time I was there, which was late 2020, I noticed that they also had a 10-household system. So I remember being in Urumqi, going into the shops by the big bazaar, and I noticed that in every shop on the wall, they would have this list of 10 shops. And so basically, there was this system introduced starting from 2017, when the whole security crackdown began. And the system required shops and households to make these groups of 10, again, with a shuhujang, with a captain. And what they had to do was everyone had to spend their own money to buy these smart alarm systems that would link them with other members of the group and with the nearest police station. And whenever the alarms went off, everyone in the group would have to run outside, uh, you know, pick up their batons and practice fighting. And we should say there were some violent attacks in Xinjiang and there were some shootings and stabbings and bombings. But their response has been to kind of tell everyone in Xinjiang and indeed the whole of China that this is kind of a call for everyone to be a sort of soldier on the front line of a kind of giant internal war against terrorism. Yeah, in a funny way, I, I feel that that language is very familiar in Zero COVID China, where you, you also talk about being in, in wartime struggle and being constantly alert. That's right. You have Xi Jinping called the commander in chief of the all out people's war on COVID. And of course, the thing about a war is that you're not allowed to debate your superior officer in a war. Your job is to salute and obey orders. Yes. So for me, I, I wanted to understand what it was like to live in this system in Xinjiang. So I interviewed a former resident of Xinjiang who was there up until very recently. For his protection, uh, he asked to be anonymous. So we voiced over a translation of his interview here. In the document you showed me, 
about what they're doing in Sichuan. This isn't mentioned, but where I was, in Xinjiang, the government would organize an informant in the group. And you wouldn't know who the informant was. This person would have a recording device and record in public places and then report. In Xinjiang, that has destroyed the trust between people. Because a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people in Xinjiang feel like they're afraid to speak, even over a meal. This doesn't just happen in restaurants, but also on buses, for example, because you know that someone has been selected as this informant, but you don't know who it is. It's a terrifying feeling. This has really destroyed the trust between people. They tell you that the reason you should join this defense force is for your safety. That's how it is in Xinjiang. And in Sichuan, it's probably like this too. They say it's for you, to protect you from the virus. In Xinjiang, it's to protect you from terrorists. With these words, they convince you to work for them for free, to become part of their security force, to become part of them. In Xinjiang, only the captain of the ten households will do this. They'll collect the information and report it to their superiors. Because the regular people in the ten households don't have any incentive to report. But of course, there are benefits to reporting people. Of course there are benefits. But I haven't experienced this, and not many people are willing to report. The majority of people do not support this, but they have no choice. Of course they don't want to do it, but police will often check if your shop complies with the safety measures, and they will check if you have the right equipment for reporting and defending, or if it matches the standards, and they will close you down if it does not. They'll punish you. They'll issue a fine to you. You don't have a choice. It's a violent system. Nobody can resist. So one thing we should acknowledge is that a, a lot of Chinese people listening to that interview will say, well, he's lying. He's an actor paid by the CIA to lie. And you Western media, you lie about Xinjiang all the time. And to be honest, in Beijing, I've heard that from uh, foreign ambassadors from democratic countries will say that we, the Western media, are playing a kind of game to hold China down by lying about Xinjiang. And so one of the kind of things I would urge listeners is if you're interested in this, just Google you know, news stories that actually explain what the Chinese government's own version of events is, because they admit that they have a gigantic counterterrorism program in Xinjiang. And if the only thing you believe is the speeches of Chinese leaders, uh, it is already pretty chilling. In other parts of China that don't have these ethnic tensions, the party can be much more successful at mobilizing people to actually become excited and to voluntarily participate in security and stability maintenance, whether it's through these 10 household systems or neighborhood patrols. They're very good at getting people mobilized to monitor one another. We'll be back with more on that in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Drum Tower, where Alice and I are looking at how Xi Jinping is trying to mobilize the population of China to police one another. To read Alice's report on the 10 household system, you can subscribe at economist.com slash drumoffer, where you can find the best introductory rate. So Alice, as you were researching, you found all these different versions of the 10 household system. What does it all add up to? What's the kind of overarching vision here? These systems we've been talking about, the 10 household system, um, the grid governance system, they're all part of Xi Jinping's broader vision for community governance. There's a term he often uses when he talks about this, and it's chunfang chunzhi, which kind of means mass self-defense and self-governance. It's a tricky term. It sounds almost democratic, like you're getting the masses to govern themselves. But what it really means is top-down mass mobilization to get people involved in their own security. In 2019, the People's Daily explained this with an analogy. If Chinese society is a human body, it said, then mobilizing the masses is like raising one's immunity so that every member of that society can destroy the viruses of social instability. That way, the body doesn't have to rely on the external medicine of the police. That's fascinating. And that idea of kind of launching the majority against the minority and splitting and cracking society into the good majority and the bad minority is the heart of a kind of really Maoist idea of revolution. Brilliant new book uh, that came out this year uh, by Lynette Ong at the University of Toronto called Outsourcing Repression, looks at the kind of the Maoist roots and how this is used in so much of the governance structures of modern China. She has this great line that the Maoist idea of mobilizing the masses is to isolate the enemy by winning the vast majority to the side of the revolution. And of course, for many Chinese who remember those Mao years, that brings back terrible memories of kind of mass campaigns where the, there was an idea that there was a certain quota of kind of bad spies or rightists or reactionaries or landlords and every village or work unit had to kind of hunt them down. And, you know, listeners who want to sort of see more of this, there are some wonderful movies made back in the days for the strictest censorship. So The Blue Kite, fantastic movie from the early 1990s by Tian Zhuang Zhuang uh, about the Maoist campaigns time after time. And there's a brilliant scene a librarian, uh, his library is trying to find the enemies of the party, and they've already chosen one, and then the party secretary of the library says to the whole team, You know, if we only have one, that doesn't kind of look like we're taking the campaign seriously. And of course, I'm not saying there are quotas, but maybe we need to try a bit harder. That bit you just heard is where the poor hero, uh, he needs a pee, so he leaves the room at the wrong moment, oh, no. comes back in, and he sees the faces of all the other librarians looking guiltily at him, and he realizes that they've found their second party enemy, and he is going to a labor camp. What's striking about this is that Xi Jinping lived through this era himself. He suffered quite a lot in the Cultural Revolution. His father was purged, his half-sister killed herself, but his response was not to reject Mao-era styles of governance, like mass mobilization, but to take them and to upgrade them for his new era. 
In fact, he's often referred to a Mao-era term called the Fengqiao Jingyan, or Fengqiao model. Yeah, actually, Xi Jinping was talking about this back in his days as a kind of provincial leader. And if you are an intellectual or someone who lived through the Mao years, that sends a chill up your spine because the real Fengqiao model, as praised by Chairman Mao back in the early 60s, was precisely to praise the people of this small town in uh, Zhejiang province who had basically launched the idea of purges, which sent people to prison and ruined their lives, but not with a courtroom or a, a judge, with the masses struggling against enemies and handing them upwards to be sent to labor camps. It's scary. But then for me, I've been kind of puzzling over this, trying to understand what does he mean when he says we need to revive and develop the Fengqiao model for a new era. And he actually wrote it in his report to the 20th Party Congress last month. You know, he said the words are right there, Fengqiao model. So I've been speaking to a couple of scholars about this. And I think one way to understand it is that the old Fengqiao was this moment when power shifted from the police to the masses, right? And Mao Zedong allegedly praised Fengqiao because he said, it's a place that did really well at Maldun Bushangjiao. They didn't let contradictions, they didn't let local problems go upwards. They didn't pass problems onto their superiors. They mobilized the local people to solve problems right where they were. And I think what's new in the new Fengqiao, kind of Fengqiao 2.0 in, in Xi Jinping's time, is that it's not the replacement of police power with people power. It's the mobilization of people power to help the police penetrate deeper. So it no longer has that connotation of chaotic struggle, but it still holds that idea of mobilizing the masses. That's right. And, you know, if a Westerner says, oh, this sounds Orwellian, the party's reply would be, well, how Western-centric of you? Because uh, what we're building is far more effective than George Orwell's kind of vision of 1984. Because, you know, 1984, you have the lone individual rebel, you know, Winston Smith, struggling to resist the tyranny above him. But this isn't about individuals. The idea is in China is that they can draw on what they call, you know, the excellent traditions of Chinese culture to have this system of control is all around you. It's your neighbors, it's your family, it's everyone around you. Yeah. And in some ways, this also fits very well with Xi's belief. And it's an old Communist Party belief in how the party should reshape people's minds and reshape their behavior right? It's not only about making rules and having police to force people to do things, but it's also about changing people's brains um, so that they voluntarily participate in stability maintenance. And, and that can be quite effective. When I was researching all of these concepts, I watched a lot of videos from kind of one example of this mass mobilization, which is these neighborhood patrol groups that have proliferated all around China. And usually they employ a lot of elderly people, kind of retired men and women who don't have much to do, and they get to put on these red armbands, they get to be part of a group that walks around and looks for suspicious activity among their neighbors. And in many cases, these people talk about how this kind of participation gives them a sense of purpose and belonging. You could almost say that this is an authoritarian replacement for civil society. That's right, Alice. And look, you know, there were always liberals in university campuses who would say, but hang on, this is trampling our basic rights. What about accountability? What about a more kind of democratic form of government? But we both know that an enormous number of Chinese certainly would say for the first two and a half years of zero COVID, as long as they felt that China was safe while the rest of the world was uh, seemed so dangerous and all these people were dying in places like America, they were on board with that sort of uh, social contract, if you like. But that was always a bet on continued success, on people still feeling safe, that it was all worth it. You know, political scientists talk about performance legitimacy. 
you don't have to win elections as a government as long as people feel that life is getting better and that everyone's safe. What you see now in China is that people are sick of zero COVID, all of those lockdowns, and because they don't feel that it's delivering safety, because the case numbers right now around me in Beijing are soaring, they're saying, well, if it's not keeping us safe, then why does this guy in a white hazmat suit get to tell me what to do, get to lock me in my flat, get me to take me off to a quarantine clinic for weeks and separate me from my children? And so that lack of legitimacy when the system isn't delivering is causing a massive pushback against all of those dreams of Xi Jinping of reviving the party grassroots. And you can see that so much of what she was trying to do with this revive the grassroots we've been talking about rests on it delivering good government, good public services, making people feel that life is getting better and they're safe. And zero COVID is a fascinating example that even people don't care about politics. They don't feel that this is delivering for them. Yeah. And I think that is what is truly threatening to the party, right? It's not just that there are these young liberal students making political demands, but it's that the other people, you know, the people that ordinarily could mobilize and could convince to say, you know, let's all do this together, police each other, mobilize together to achieve this great China dream society. Those people are seeing through that dream or they're saying, why should we mobilize with you when you're not delivering and you're harming us and you're hurting our lives, you're hurting our livelihoods? This is what is really threatening. And it's going to get harder and harder because, you know, as we're going to talk about on our next episode of Drum Tower, the case numbers are really soaring. And the Communist Party leadership, which has boasted about its performance until now, really doesn't have great choices because to make these protests stop, you could just lift all the controls, but then you are going to get an explosion of cases. And that's going to make people really frightened. So, This is a very bumpy time for the party and all of those dreams of rebuilding a new kind of China with that total surveillance and control. We'll be keeping up with all that on the next episode of Drum Tower. We don't have a surveillance state here at Drum Tower, so do let us know what you think. Every morning I wake up in Beijing and I just see a ton of emails from Drum Tower listeners and you're asking really good questions. They're inspiring us as we plan future episodes, so please keep sending them in. It's one of my great treats now is to wake up, log on and see the emails from listeners. That's right. Thank you so much for that. If you have more that you want to tell us or questions you have about China, ideas for future episodes, anything you want to say, just record a voice note or write a message and send it by email to drum at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and we'll have more Drum Tower next week. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore, who produced this episode with Barkley Bram. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. Music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producers are Sandra Shmueli and John Shields. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.